Hello and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate centrists and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today I have with me a very special guest, Julie Lombard, who is my aunt. Hello. Julie went with me to the principal's first conference in Washington, D.C. last month, so I thought that it would be an excellent opportunity to finally bring her on the show. She's a guest that I have always wanted to have and ironically is very difficult to book in spite of us being related. But I thought that it would be a great time to get her on the show and to just kind of talk about the conference, talk about the Republican Party, and dive into what the future of both looks like. So that's what we're going to be going over today. Let's get started. Julie, thank you for being on the show. It's weird to call you by your first name. Thank you for having me. It's it's okay if you call me Julie. It's also okay if you call me Aunt Julie. Before we get into talking about the Principal's First Conference and what their vision of the Republican Party is, I think that it's important that we establish the Republican Party that exists currently and the Republican Party of the past. So what is your experience like when we like not just not currently but in your childhood what was your experience like with the republican party well it was an interesting time also then it was the 80s and we had actually my childhood the whole 80s right so the fall of um the berlin wall we had uh ussr the fall of that also Reagan was president. Margaret Thatcher was uh, prime minister. The Iron Lady. The Iron Lady. I think it was like, it was actually a pretty important time as I look back. But I, as I watched you grow up, Hillary, and your involvement in politics, I often thought about my involvement in politics at the same time we were both in high school. When you were in high school, you were very involved in politics and social issues and all of those things. Me, on the other hand, I can remember just spouting my mom and dad's politics. I think your experience is much more relatable than my experience. Most mm-hmm. people aren't like in the presidential debate at seven, you know, <laughs> just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. I was like, I do think we should go to the Middle East. That's right, George. <laughs> like, like, oh, thank you, little girl in like Mammoth Lakes, California. And I was like, that's good. Please. I think they have weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> I've seen the news. I believe the intel. (laughs) I had a really great English teacher who asked me um, what I thought about something and who I would vote for. And I said, Leah Iacocca. I don't even even know. I didn't tell her I didn't even know. I was just proud because somebody I knew somewhere said that. (laughs) And they were smart. And they were smart. That's how much I knew about politics. I I don't know him. And there was so much going on. I wish I would have been involved the way that you were because there was, it was, it was a great time, really a great time. A lot of things were happening and I just wasn't involved. And then I joined the military and there was still a lot going on with Bosnia, just so many things, Desert Storm. And, and just my view of the world was so much smaller. I was actually involved or witnessing, could have been witnessing so much. It was in the USAFE. What was that? The U.S. Air Force in Europe. I was stationed at Lake and Heath, England, and I was there for three years at, at the beginning of the 90s. Is there, there was a lot going on, Desert Storm. There were different missions, um, and I just didn't realize what was going on around me. Why? Because I hadn't been involved as a youth, because we didn't have the social media that we have today. We didn't have that access to it. Our parents weren't as involved. So what was it like 
what was the Republican Party like? It was strong as far as I know. Do you think that most of the people that you knew were Republican? Absolutely. That's the other bit. The military is, I wasn't the first one in. The military runs strong in our family. And Republican, everybody was. What's weird for me to think about, just because we have the same family, <laughs> is like when I was a kid, I'm not sure I knew a Democrat. Right. Except at like school, but like in my, in our family, like I don't know. Cause I remember when mom, when my mom and dad disagreed about the president. Oh yes. I because too. mom was going to vote for a Democrat for the first time. And I, I was like a Democrat. What do you mean? And I don't even know if I knew like what the political parties were at that point. I just knew that we were a George Bush household. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who? <laughs> What, was it like that for you? Yes and no. I First off, I grew up, my hero was Abraham Lincoln, right? The first Republican president. And so I was going to be everything that I could be that he was. Obviously, Can I pause you for a yeah. second? She drew his picture. Oh. <laughs> she had like trivia cards for him. She went to the Lincoln Memorial for the very first time and wept. Yeah. So when she's my hero was Abraham Lincoln, I just need you guys to know she went hard in the paint for Lincoln. I did. I did. And still do, really. Yeah, because also on this trip, we went to the Lincoln Memorial. It was my first time there. It was not hers. And she literally bought trivia cards. I did. And then she was doing them in the hotel, just in case there was a quiz. We were also um, on a search for busts. We were bust hunters, and we got Lincoln busts. Did you get a bust? I got a bust. She got a bust. I, I got, got a bust. Two. Well, I got yeah. two busts. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's true. Because we got a little one. And then we went to the museum and she saw the bigger ones and she bought that too. And she said, how much would you put down if you see a big one? I was like, all the money. All the money. <laughs> yeah, how much does a big one cost? That's how much I'd put down. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I grew up with him, right? And gosh, I, I can just remember all the comparisons. Like Reagan was shot and like all of the different superstitions and how the comparisons and how they were, were like Lincoln and uh, Kennedy, who was obviously not a Republican. So yeah, I didn't know any Democrats. And then I joined the military and in 1992. That is when I joined in 90. But in 92, that's when Clinton became president. And he was the first Democrat. Did you vote for him? Absolutely did. How come? He was exciting, right? And uh, cool. And yeah, yeah. Nothing against George Bush Sr. George Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> He, the nerdier of the George Bushes. I know, and he was actually great. He was a great president. But as far as fun. As was far it? as fun, he was a dud. <laughs> Barbara, a great time, as I understand it. Barbara Bush, very fun. And and he was following Reagan, so I was very excited about Clinton, and he was uh, talking about issues that I was just learning about myself. Was it how he played the sax? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it really wasn't. But it, also, think about it, like, I was in England during his campaign, so I didn't see a lot of the same things that uh, stateside folks did, but it was really his stance on social issues. So having grown up Republican, I joined the military, which is mostly Republican, but I'm also gay, and that was not allowed, obviously. And I learned a lot. I, I met a lot of Democrats at that point because most gay people were Democrats. On the softball team? On the softball team. Yep. Every stereotype there was, <laughs> that was me. Uh, but that's how you, we would meet people, right? There were plenty of straight people on the softball team too. Right? I'm not sure about that, but shout out to the straight girl that just wanted to play second base. This was the first time we had heard politicians speak about it. 
we being gay people mm-hmm. that I was around on the softball team. Anyway, it was the first time that we were hearing a politician make some kind of stance. And I can tell you also, this is not your question, but I can remember them floating the idea of gay marriage. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. There is no way in hell that's going to happen. Like, you're asking too much. We're going to fail because you're asking for too much. And then here we are today. And we actually have gay marriage. But anyway, I digress. It wasn't until I got in the military and Clinton was running that I saw any division uh, between the Republicans that I knew and Democrats because I had been surrounded by Republicans. So yeah, that's when I became a Democrat. So you say you didn't know any Democrats, but you knew me. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah, and that's it. And so That's crazy. I didn't even really think about that. We were very close when I was young and I guess, yeah, I knew you like who would obviously be a Democrat, but I don't, I didn't think that. Probably because I was in the military and then I was in law enforcement and those are two very Republican areas. And that's why she's on Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate centrists <laughs> and independents. So just circling back to that, the Republican Party that you experienced when you were a kid, how similar is that to the Republican Party that you experience now? <laughs> they look nothing alike, except in their um, strength, I guess I would say. When I was a youth, I thought the Republican Party was very strong. I think it's probably what drew me like into the military and into law enforcement. I like the structure. They just, Reagan, there we go, Reagan. He just seemed like a strong character. And I'm sure there was actually the combination of both of those military folks in my family and everything else. And then I look at the Republicans now and I do see they are, they're still a strong force to be reckoned with, right? And I align with them in so many ways, but the difference is the spine. It's missing. It's absolutely missing. And I would never have said Reagan was spineless. There's obviously, uh, we know now lots of things that we probably don't agree with as far as Reagan goes, but we would never say he had no spine. That is probably the most sickening thing to me about the Republican Party. And that's what I see is the spinelessness. On any decision, they, they are running scared. The Republican Party of my youth did not run scared. Can you create a future for the Republican Party without dealing with the past. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But I think that they're trying. That's what I felt at the conference. And I, it's what I feel when I watch the news too, because you'll have Mitch McConnell will just be like, it's, it's kind of like in the New Testament when Jesus shows up and he's like, that was the past before. <laughs> and he's, I'm here now. Uh-huh. And now we're all about love. I feel yeah. like Mitch McConnell kind of tries to do that with the Republican Party because he's like, yeah, all that Trump stuff, like that was then. Uh-huh. But now we're back to being principled. And it's, I just, I don't know that you can do that because everyone remembers. Yeah. It's like they shoot their own credibility. Yeah. And so I wonder, can they start over? Because for me, could I forgive them, right? The Mitch McConnell's and all of those troublemakers. Mm -hmm. And my answer is, yeah, probably, I probably could if we just started over, if I could just have the Republican party back where it should be, I probably would. But I don't know those that, you know, they're actually in the trenches. The congressmen, you know, the never Trumpers are, feel they can forgive. What do you think that starting over looks like? Jesus. I say <laughs> that because Jesus, in the explanation you were giving, he's a new person. Right. He's not one of the past. And so he's able to come in and say, this is, this is now, right? Mm-hmm. This is me. And... We can buy that because he's a new person. So the others, it kind of has to be just a, we have to agree to forget it. 
that could be the reckoning. I don't, I don't know if it's possible, but there has to be an acknowledgement, I think. And I think that that's really difficult, especially not necessarily for the politicians, but kind of for the Trump voters. Because I think when you look at how we vote now, it's all identity. We gave up church, so now we have political parties. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Trumper, you're like, make America great again. I've got the hat. I watch Fox News. Like, I love guns. Like, all of these things about you line up behind this. So for you to admit that you were wrong or that he was wrong, it like, it shakes you more than it should. It undoes you. And I think that just makes the stakes so high that to have this reckoning... What would be required is to be for people to be like, I was wrong before. Yeah. And I think that the stakes feel too high to do that. I think, I, I guess what I meant was, I think I could just forgive them. Mm -hmm. If we would just all agree that we don't talk about it again, <laughs> I, I would be okay with that. And to me, it's like, we just need to all agree. That's mm -hmm. the reckoning. That's that line of demarcation. If we had that, I could just move past it. And I feel like the, the make America great hat wearing, you know, Trump white flag wearing or whatever, it gives them a place. They don't have to face that shame. If you watch Fox News all the time and you don't watch something else, I think like, why wouldn't you think that Fox News used to be credible? So it's like if the people that know that it's not credible are the people who don't watch it. Yeah. So it's, if that's what you watch all the time, because even if I watch it, I'm like, man, wow, the border is out of control. <laughs> Maybe it is, but it's just, I think that you are the information that you're fed in a lot of ways. So we need to start, some, somebody at Fox somewhere needs to agree that we feed them different stuff so that they don't have to face the shame monster. I'm feeling like we have to have a reckoning because the never Trumpers won't accept anything less, but also we probably couldn't move forward if we dove too deep. Like literally, Mitch McConnell is not my favorite person. He's the villain of this show. Yes. <laughs> and so Kevin McCarthy came to the stage. Well, if they did an about face. Yeah. I would just be ready to move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just be ready to be done with that. Well, and also like when, when he came out and said the election wasn't stolen, I was like, God bless you. I know. <laughs> and it, it didn't, it didn't sit right with me, but that is how I felt. Is I was mm -hmm. like, oh, thank God, bitch is here. And I've yeah. never felt like that. It's like that for me with Mitt Romney too. Yeah. Yeah, because I was definitely not a supporter, you know, before Trump. And when he stood up to Trump, I'm like, yeah, can he run for president? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And? Consider me someone in your binder full of women. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm no longer offended by that comment. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's so true because I think Liz Cheney is the biggest example for me because I disagreed with her on every policy possible. But then like when she showed true courage, I was like, oh, this reshuffles my priority list considerably because now the most important thing to me in a politician is a spine and courage. Right. And like when she had those things, I was like, I guess my policy preferences are not as important as I thought. How I feel about fiscal policy and how mm -hmm. I feel about courage are not equal. Well, that says a lot about you, though. I think if that is, you, you found out those are your, those are things that are most important to you. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about the social issues and they're huge for me, mm -hmm. right? But I'm the same way. If I see the courage, I see the backbone. Surprisingly, that is actually my number one thing. I am, I am a Democrat, and I wouldn't have voted for, for uh, Romney and he changed my mind. Not on the, it, the social issues, because we disagree, but it was because he had a spine. Same thing with actually Liz Cheney. It's, it's a great example, because I thought she did do an about-face on things. Yeah, took responsibility you know? for Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. and I respect that so much. 
And I think I'm it's ready so hard. <laughs> I know, me too. And I'm just like, I'll move to Wyoming. Mm-hmm. That's reasonable. Yeah. Like, sure, I'll campaign mm-hmm. for her full time. But I think like, that's such a good point that she did the about face because that's how she retains credibility to me. Yeah. is It's so hard to say that you're wrong. Especially when so many people want you to be wrong. They're just waiting for you to, to be like, oh, gotcha. So like to go on 60 Minutes or whatever it was and be like, hey, I was wrong about the LGBT issue. Like I was mean to my sister. I was not evolved enough and I've changed. That's so brave. I know. Being brave enough to say that you're wrong goes into the courage category for me. Also on the opposite side of the political spectrum, I would say that about Hillary Clinton. On actually on the LGBT issue because she yeah. said I have evolved on that issue and that's why yes I did say that in the past but I've evolved on the issue and I feel like this now. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally human and we should all be able to relate to that. I've evolved on so many things for one, you know. <laughs> yeah, literally as we talk right now, Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But I, and I think also it's helpful that Trump has really moved the goalposts on what offends me. It used to be a lot, and now it's the bare minimum. Yeah. Things what? that would otherwise upset me, I'm suddenly much less upset about. I think, like, the difference that, like, with Cheney doing an about face, that was believable to me. If Trump did an about face, I wouldn't believe it. Mm. So that's why I could, could really never vote for him. But there's really nothing he could do because nothing about him is believable. Mm-hmm. And, well, Cheney, who is super conservative and all the way over, she could get my vote because of that, because she's believable. Why do you think she's believable? Like, why would you, I understand why you wouldn't believe Trump. Like, that's, Mm -hmm. but what about Liz do you think is trustworthy? Oh my gosh, she like totally put her neck on the stump, Mm -hmm. you know, and and did it again and again and again. For the truth. Yes. 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 Sorry, I pointed it out. No, (laughs) no. That's, that's exactly it. I, I understand the family dynamics, you know, with her sister and everything, and that that is hard, and that it was a thorn for quite some time. But she had the courage to say that she was wrong in that. And that's one thing, but then literally put her head on the stump over and over and over, just for the principle. We have principled leaders like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, right? But they're not the most popular in the Republican Party. Do you think that we can have a leader in the Republican Party that is a principled leader that can be anything besides a martyr. Because Liz Cheney, she took a principled stance, she put her neck on the stump, and she was ripped out of leadership. Mm-hmm. And now they don't know if she's going to win her primary. Like, she, she could probably win her election, but maybe not her primary. And then you have Mitt Romney, who's getting booed and called a traitor, and people are following him around the airport. And then Adam Kinzinger just announced that he won't seek re-election either, and these are the people that took the principled stances. And if you look at the number of people that voted yes on impeachment that are Republican, the majority of them are not gonna run for reelection. So the narrative that you see unfolding like in the press is that you take a principled stand and then you lose. Mm-hmm. Here's Joe Walsh, the former congressman from Illinois. If Trump runs again in 24, the nomination is his, we all know that. Um, and no one will challenge him. Larry Hogan? Great man. Doesn't have a prayer. Mitt Romney, great man. Doesn't have a prayer to win the nomination in that party in 24. If Trump runs, he won't be challenged. To Barbara's other point, Trump is a cancer. Trump's not the cancer in the party. Trumpism is the cancer. It's metastasized way beyond him. 
And again, I, I know I'm, gonna, I'm a dark Irishman. You're all going to throw something at me before we're out of here. And maybe, maybe my vantage point is skewed. Because I hear from these people every day. Um, it's, not, it's not changing. The fever's not breaking any time soon. Do everything Miles and Barbara say that we need to do to support the good guys, the good gals. Liz Cheney, wonderful. God, I hope she wins. I don't think there's any way she can win a Republican primary in that state. I hope she does. My good friend Adam Kinzinger is not running again. Uh, Adam couldn't have, have survived a Republican Party primary. If he were running, everybody in this room would help him, as would I. But we, we've got to also be, wake up and be realistic. Do you think that it is possible to have a principled leader in the Republican Party that we have right now that is anything besides a martyr? I don't think, I, I would say I don't think right now because I do think that is what's happening. We'll have to have enough martyrs first, sadly. But those people are moving it forward, you know, and they're clearing the way for the person, whoever it is that comes forward out of the Republican Party that actually wins and gets the vote. And it can't happen without the sacrifices of which, those other good principled people. Which kind of goes to what Heath Mayo was saying. Heath Mayo is the organizer for the Principles First Conference, and he opened it by saying that sometimes you have to be brave enough to lose. When I think about people like Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Denver Riggleman, the people that we have speaking today, but tomorrow, Jeff Duncan, all of, all of our panelists, that everyone in this room is unafraid, right. fearless, yeah. unafraid to speak the truth, unafraid to go into rooms that are uncomfortable and say the hard things, and unafraid to lose. It isn't always about what pulls the best or what you can sell. For a principal's first leader, a principal's first leader is unafraid to say what needs saying, no matter what the consequences are. At the, at the polling booth, whatever it is, they're unafraid. And that, I, I can't say enough about how inspiring it is to be in a room of people who are truly, truly just unafraid and fearless to say what they believe. Even in this room, we disagree. We disagree, we're unafraid to disagree. We don't all have to be singing the same tune to know that at the end of the day, we are here because we love our country. Yeah, I would agree with you that I think we're going to need a lot of people to jump on the grenade before to take the fear out of it, mm -hmm. I think. Because right now, what you'll hear people say is, oh, Everybody hates Trump behind the scenes, but then in the same breath, they'll go back out and be like, I love him and he's so brave and this is mm. why. All because they're so afraid of him. And, but even worse, I think, is that they're afraid of his voters. Yeah. And I think that that's so much scarier because that's, that's outgrown him as a risk. And now we're looking at, the, I, I do think that the Republican Party is afraid of its own voters. I do too. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Because <laughs> then it's bigger than them. I personally think that a principled movement can be born out of the Republican Party, but it can't exist within the current Republican Party. At least right now, 
the people that would martyr those that are trying to take the principled stance that we're talking about, that's the base. So what do you do? I mean, what do Republicans do? That, that was definitely one of the biggest questions at the summit. Whether or not traditional Republicans or traditional conservatives should stay in Trump's Republican Party and try to fix it or leave and either vote for a Democrat or try to create a third party. And the group was pretty divided. Here's Joe Walsh again and Barbara Boxer, the former congresswoman from Virginia. I think that they both argued their... I think that they both really crushed their side of the argument on this topic. Check it out. Should we stay or should we go? I have no idea what they're both going to say. Um, to me, this is simple. Uh, and to me, we're a year or two or three too late. Uh, to me, all due respect to Heath and principles first, I don't know why the hell we're even asking that question anymore. Stay where? Stay where? Look, I, uh, I, I'm in a weird spot because uh, unlike these two, uh, I, I voted for Trump in 2016. I come from the mega base. And because I come from the, the GOP base, and make no mistake, the Trump base, the mega base, that is the Republican Party base right now. That's the world I come from. And I hear from hundreds, sometimes thousands of these voters every day still. And I want to tell you, the vast majority of them are gone. I don't care what Mitch McConnell says. Uh, I don't care what any Republican in Washington says. The Republican Party base is gone. Almost completely. Uh, should we stay in the Republican Party? I don't believe this Republican Party will change in my lifetime. It's set. If Trump were gone tomorrow, how awesome would that be? If Donald Trump were gone tomorrow, nothing's changing for the party. The train is going down the track. If Trump's gone tomorrow, the Republican Party nominee in 2024 is going to be Ron DeSantis, probably. Or it's going to be somebody who's even Trumpier than Ron DeSantis, most definitely. No matter, again, what Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy or any of these guys say, this is where the voters in the party are. Hell no, you, all of us shouldn't stay in that. Well, if Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, I honestly don't think there would be many of my former Republican colleagues or electeds in the search party. <laughs> if, I think that is true. It's a hostage situation for many Republicans. So, I mean, I am still a Republican. I say I'm, I'm Catholic and I'm a Republican. I have a faith that's a little bit, you know, got some problems. I've got a party that's got some problems. I'm sticking with both of them. My I was reading a quote from Tamara Bakova, who is a Kiev resident, and she said, quote, it's my country and I am not the one who should leave. The Russians are the ones that should leave. Now that's true there, and it's also true, I think, for our party. I was a Republican, actually did a, my first panel I ever did um, for here at the National Press Club was when we were working on impeachment of Bill Clinton. Back in those days, Donald Trump was writing checks to Bill Clinton and um, I think Chuck Schumer, the Clintons. Um, he was uh, against impeachment, not just because of the sex portion of the impeachment, but he just didn't want him to be impeached at all. 
He was inviting Bill and Hillary to the, to the wedding, right? To their, his wedding to Melania. He was for partial birth abortion. He was um, for raising taxes, not lowering them. So these are all, I was fighting against all of those things. I'm going to be damned if I'm going to be run out of town, out of my party, by a New York Democrat who's just an opportunist. Selfishly thinking about legacy, because you know I like to. Mm-hmm. Mitt Romney, I don't know what it is like for him in Utah or whatever, and what he's done with his career, but the thing that I'll remember him for is his murdership, his his spine, his standing up. So if you want to make your mark on the world, because America leads the world, mm-hmm. then you stand up to Trump, yeah, it might be the end of your career, but it'd be the most important thing you did with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe if you hadn't done that, then you could kick around, you know, and be a congressman or be a whatever, elected whatever, for several more years doing unremarkable things. Yeah. Unlegacy defining things. And actually to to go down as someone who stood for principle is a good way to go. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the thing that I'll remember. And I'm sure that there will be a lot of people that do. And the ones that don't won't remember him anyway. Adam Kinzinger said something similar when asked, like, why did he vote the way he did on impeachment? Why has he been so steadfast about the election not being stolen? And he says that it's because he knows the moment that we're living in is going to be in a social studies book and that he's his son or daughter is going to come home and ask, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And he wants to be able to say the right thing. I got to tell you, this country, no doubt, is at a crossroads. There's no doubt Ukraine is at a crossroads. Ukraine's crossroads is a little more physical, it's a little more obvious, and it's way more violent. But we're at a crossroads in this country. I know you all know this. I knew it too, but there was a day that I kind of had the realization that it wasn't just a crossroads, it was the fight of our lives. I want to tell you a little about that day. That was January 6, 2021. I also knew what every one of you know instinctively, which is when we want to do democracy, when we want to have self-governance, there is only one basic contract that has to exist, that if you vote, it will count, and that the the vote will be accurate, the counting will be accurate. When you have a leader of the free world that stands in front of America and convinces half the country that the system is broken, that your vote doesn't count, Listen, as, a, as patriotic Americans, we can understand why some would say then it is time to overthrow a government by force. If I truly believed that the election system in this country was rigged by Satan-worshipping pedophiles who drink babies' blood, <laughs> I don't think I'd go peacefully into the night either, which is why a leader's words matter so much. If God had not been on our side, it would have been a very, very different day. But I remember calling my wife on the phone, and I just, you know, like disbelief. It reminded me a lot of, of, you know, moments in war. And I just felt something I've only felt maybe twice in my entire life, a dark kind of evil presence. And I'm not one of these people that walks around sensing evil everywhere, Okay. But that moment, I just said, this is wrong. This is gross. This is terrible. And of course, after that, everybody said the right thing, and it only took a few weeks 
for that those stars, that idea of power, that idea of adulation and, and, and applause to take over. And if we as Republicans would have just simply taken a full accounting for what happened, taken responsibility, we could have moved on. We could have determined nothing like that would ever happen again in the United States. And instead, we try to sweep it under the rug. Well, it's not going to get swept under the rug. The truth is out. Because whether or not you or your friends want to know the truth, your kids do. And their kids do. And the next generation does. Americans in a hundred years deserve to know the truth because we will not be the first generation in American history that leaves our kids a country worse off than the one we inherited. We refuse to. I think one thing that affects us as a society is that we stopped thinking long term. Yeah. Like everything is short sighted victories, shortcuts to this, shortcuts to that. But and I think that prevents people from thinking about legacy mm -hmm. like you're talking about, because I think as soon as you do, it's like, oh, God, like, <laughs> oh, no. If I was out here taking these votes to get money or taking voting against what I thought was right, like some of them truly have been egregious votes. And yeah. when you take them, you're just like, nothing's going to happen. But if we had COVID, war in Ukraine, a coup on the U.S. Capitol, this is going in the book, like yeah. the time we're living in right now. That's going to make it in the book. Uh -huh. And... You don't want to be John C. Calhoun or like Andrew Jackson. No. You know, but like you're going to be. And I think that they can't possibly be thinking about legacy because it's not going to be like, yeah, but Trump really loved me. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not like he's going to age well. So when they're like, grandpappy, what did you do during this time? I made sure Donald Trump was so in love with me. That would be like, what did you do? Oh, I made sure Adolf Hitler was so happy. No, I just think that is so true, though, because I don't know how people would think that this has been a great time for America. And it's been great to line up with Trump. Are you implying we didn't make America great again? I'm definitely implying don't make America. We made America a bit of a, a, bit of a laughing stock. Well, then there's still time. There's that campaign slogan time. is still applicable. We can just keep using it. Until we do it. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. The founders of this great nation created an experiment in democracy. One fueled by competition, but also by cooperation. You cheated! Why don't you cry that someone can bail you out? Some leaders in Washington have forgotten the purpose of democracy. They focus on having the next insult or soundbite to spread online, rather than focusing on how to make real opportunity possible. They have forgotten that rules and common courtesy are what's allowed us to come back to the field, to participate in this great experiment. Let's just go back to the game. We need leaders to focus on what matters. Safer communities, better opportunities for all. Things all Americans want, even if we have different ideas on how to achieve them. Are you okay? Yeah, good luck. Thanks. But protecting our future isn't about scoring a single run or winning a single game. It's about maintaining the integrity of our sacred sandlot. The country we love must continue to thrive rather than be pulled down by mudslinging, name-calling, and self-serving actions. This is the vision of Country First, where reasonable Americans from all backgrounds can take part for the benefit of future generations. Add your voice to the movement and support proven solutions at countryfirst.com today. But you were talking about how we're thinking in short term, yeah. not long term. And I think the world, it's because we lead the world the, the world could turn to that too. 
And that's not good because all of our big problems, they need long-term solutions. I think that's a, prob a problem. It's but, like politics or fast food, you know? Oh. No, it's not healthy either, right? No. I would even see that doomsday scenario and raise you one, which is that I think that China's strength comes from their ability to think long term. Yeah. Because they're not thinking about, and even the people, not just the politicians, but they're not necessarily thinking about their individual happiness. They're thinking about the preservation of China, the like the strength of China. And then we're over here. Yeah, I'll attack a, the first black woman running for the or for the Supreme Court because I need to be reelected next year. Right. Oh, good. <laughs> and as a side note, it's crazy to me that some politicians think if they don't attack the first black woman to run for the Supreme Court, they might not get reelected. South Carolina, you need to reflect. <laughs> There's a reason that Lindsey Graham thinks that he can win off of that clip running that he is going to get money and acclaim i guess for attacking her the fact that he's doing that and that he thinks that that's what voters want that he thinks that he will benefit from looking like a dog off of a train and i think that 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 plays a part in the principal conversation too because i think that it's like we need to remember that principles matter we as a people not we as politicians because i think that ukraine is a great example because i think that when you look at mitt romney right and his vote on impeachment i think sometimes our leaders lead us and sometimes our leaders need to be led. Yeah. And I think that Ukraine is an example of our leaders needing to be led by us. Like we have put, and Zelensky, we have put pressure on them to do more. We the people. Like we the people have raised $60 million because we care. We're watching. Like it, we're willing to sacrifice. That message is getting up to our elected leaders. Because at first they were like, here's some sanctions. And we said no. Not enough. Not enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that like with principles... I really don't, I don't know if we need to be led or if we need to lead them or they need to lead us, but I think that there is a serious decay as a society. We've become so obsessed with how to get ahead or like your own personal success that we've stopped thinking long-term, to your point, about our society's success. And I think there's no better example than COVID with masks is we are thinking about our individual right to not wear one as opposed to our or everybody else's individual right not to get COVID and die. Yeah, it's very selfish. Yeah, and I think that we used to take such pride in solidarity. Like, that was, like, our brand. They used to say, you better not, like, anger the American people because then you're really screwed once we all agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What does that look like? And I think I think there's some... We're seeing the, the echo of that in Ukraine is if we all agree, you're in trouble. I think Putin is in trouble because right now we all agree. But it's, it's not what it used to be. Like, because before, when politics was boring, back in the day, <laughs> I wasn't alive, neither was she. But it's if you said something egregious, you would lose your election. You would not gain fundraising dollars. There used to be things that would be political suicide. That's like a phrase that I know. Oh, that's political suicide. I didn't inhale. <laughs> yeah, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And he did. <laughs> and we were mad then, you know? And it's just now we love it. Because, it, because it's sensationalism. I think we have not gotten our hands around the problem of proud corruption. So covert corruption is a very old problem and we have systems for it. And all of them assume that people would actually be ashamed somebody found out about their corruption. 
And you know, that assumption is clearly incorrect um, because there is a world of people right now who, when uh, faced with their own corruption, are, first of all, don't don't make any kind of You know, uh, uh, Donald Trump tried to extort the president of Ukraine in public, right? It wasn't uh, there wasn't anything, uh, there was the, the famous phone call, which was not public, but when that phone call came out, he reiterated it in, in public. There was nothing hidden about it. There was nothing quiet, there was nothing ashamed. And all of these systems that we have for managing corruption assume ultimately that people have to face the voters. And there's this assumption that if we reveal this stuff, uh, well, that will diminish their capacity election. And then somebody comes along and says, yes, I'm corrupt. You know, I'm going to give pardons to the people who uh, uh, are loyal to me. I'm going to dangle them in public so that they don't cooperate with a federal investigation. And you're not going to care. You're going to love me more because of this. And he's not wrong. I think Ukraine is such an interesting study because it, in leadership, actually the, this time period is because you're talking about Americans, you know, we're leading our politicians a little bit right now and the opposite is true in Ukraine. He is leading his people and we're, we're seeing an example of both. I'm not saying which one's better necessarily right now, but Ukraine, Ukraine needs what they need Zelensky for sure. Yeah. And if they were not united, they'd have been rolled over by now. Mm -hmm. Like their success is definitely coming from their solidarity, their being united, and also Americans leading our politicians because we're sending things to them to shoot those, shoot the planes down and everything else. And I think it's just such a, an interesting dynamic because these are two different, two opposite ends of that leadership spectrum. And we're seeing both of them. Whenever there's a big disaster, I know that people like to shit on everybody that's like, putting up their Instagram posts or trying to get involved. But like, I really think that that is the heart of America. That's the part of America that I feel really proud of is that like when something is wrong, individual people in your neighborhood are giving money or trying to do something. When we see a problem, we try to do something. I think that that is uniquely American. And part of it comes from the arrogance of being American. Yes. Because and the empowerment of it. Yeah, and but it's not a bad thing. It's mm -hmm. like when we see a problem, we're like, oh yes, I, Hillary in Sacramento, I can do something about that. Not only can I, I must. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. America. <laughs> like yeah. I'm like, oh, you arrogant little bastards. But I'm also like, I love that. Like that, that is our brand is like, if it we is. see a problem, we believe that we not just can do something, but must do it. Mm -hmm. Because that is the call because like we, I think that we as a country believe that we are called to action. That's the reason that we're the biggest, is that we are called to act. And I think that that uh, trickles down to you and me. Yes. And whoever is listening. It's we feel that we can do something, so we do it. And I don't think that it's like that everywhere. China's a good example. Yeah. Part, that's a country that I don't know that their people feel empowered or that they have, that they're in a position to make an individual change, like, I don't think they have the arrogance that we do, the passion to, to make changes, because I don't think they know that they can. Hong Kong is a good example that teaches the Chinese people that they cannot do anything yeah. about their state, because their state of things. Because in Hong Kong, they tried to, and they got put down.
Whereas in America, we think that we can do something. And if one of our movements get put down, then another one pops up right behind it. So I think we've established that our shared view of the current Republican Party, not necessarily the people, but at least the politicians, is not particularly favorable. Correct, yeah. So that's the experience that you took into the Principal's First Summit with you. Yes. Right? Packed your bag with that little baggage. Yes. Went in. Do you think that the Principal's First Summit reinforced that or broke that for you, that perception of Republicans? It reminded me of the Republicans of old that I grew up with. That was the party. With a spine? I remember. Huh? With a spine? Yes, absolutely. And it, I know this sounds absolutely crazy, but you and I are always so present when we're all in, right? We're all in. And when I was there, I was seeing, it's why I think I was so inspired, really, is because it felt familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And I was inspired. I, I felt hopeful because these are people that were speaking about principles they cared about. They're the same principles I care about. And truly, I think they're principles everyone cares about. There are Democrats in the room, actually. And I can tell you that if I was in a room full of the MAGA Republicans, I, I would I would have felt so physically uncomfortable. Yeah, I like, was going to say, it feels scary. Fearful. But I didn't feel that at all at this meeting. I felt so inspired. I, I was like, do I need to join the Republican Party so I can vote for the right people to get into the Republican Party or to get into the, you know, to the right elections and, and support? And that's how all in I felt. And so comforted and familiar. That felt so familiar. And safe, actually. And safe, yes. I did. I felt safe. Like, I felt like I could say... What I really think about an issue, I raised my hand to ask a question, um, and I felt like I could do that in a room of people that I knew probably didn't agree with me on everything, but I felt safe that they would respect my question and engage in good faith with me. I didn't think anybody would be like shouting me down or anything like that, but also safe in a larger sense because like it made me feel safer like in America or safer like when I think about our future. I feel like our future is safe in a room like this. Yeah, me too. One of the speakers in the session, The Rule of Law, one of the panelists talked about the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and so forth and talked about how we were built to argue and to fight things out, obviously not with rocks in the playground, but to debate. And we were built that way and that fighting and arguing is good for us. I thought, I thought that was great. It was, it was really great to hear. We just need to relearn how to fight. And Derrida talks about how you negotiate the non-negotiable. That's what we do. That's what we do. If we disagree on trade policy. If we disagree on whether or not Russia and Ukraine is a threat, and I agree, it's very scary. But if we disagree, the proper place to have those disagreements is in our institutions and debating them not trying to push people out and delegitimizing them. And the, both the right and the left have done this, so they've been doing it for a very long time. It's a very concerning development, because it says that we see politics as a means to an end. I think we need to embrace a more, end, like a more classical notion of political thinking that dates back to the way our founders thought about politics, to the way people like Lincoln thought about politics, and to, yes, the very principle of step into the arena. Step into the arena, fight for what we believe in, but to do so without trying to delegitimize and push out those who we disagree with. I just had a guest on Michael. It's the episode that aired right before this. And I was asking him about democracy versus authoritarianism 
And he was saying, like, democracy has a lot of problems because we're free enough to talk about them. Mm. It's not that Russia and China don't have problems. It's that if you try to bring them up in Russia and China, you're in danger. <laughs> danger, 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 danger. But I think that that's important to remember is we have a lot of problems because we're free enough to talk about them. Whereas if we were in Russia, we can't even talk about the fact that there's a war right now. Right. Let alone protest it in front of the White House in a safe place. Mm -hmm. But we have forgotten how to fight because now we are literally in the playground with rocks. Yeah. Throwing rocks. Yeah. There's like it's threatening to hear an opinion that's not yours. It is. As you know, because our families are the same family. I grew up surrounded by Republicans, right? And that includes my uncles. And... We don't speak anymore. We pretty much wrote them and my brother, older brother. One of them I'm still speaking with and the other one I'm not. We're that divided. We stopped learning how to have debates. It's just fights. And those fights were not healthy. They weren't had in a healthy way. We stopped fighting well. We stopped fighting the way the founding fathers intended us to. And we went to fisticuffs right away or learning how to get past a fight but i think sometimes you should get in a fight about politics because like i believe in it a lot i believe in certain things enough that i think you should get in a fight over it i think that you should after that fight get over it Mm -hmm. or that you should figure out how to move past it yeah exactly and that is what that panelist was talking about at the principles first summit exact exactly that we should be able to have those debates and talk about what's really important to us and then get past it. And we aren't. One of the things that I found very thrilling about being at that conference was that we were in a room full of people that did not agree. And that was like electric to me. It made me realize the the value of being around people you don't agree with. I make a point because I work with a political spectrum (laughs) and I try to solicit what they have to say i disagree with but sometimes it really pisses me off but when we were in that room i was like i would love to see a debate unfold right now because i i believe everybody would be engaging in good faith or constructively arguing what they believe in for the experience of the argument or for a constructive solution Mm -hmm. not to kill each other yes and that just made me realize how few forums in everyday American life people have for that. Especially now with COVID, because the only people that you see really are your family and you pretty much know how they stand. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you self-deter. Yep. But like, I think especially not just with COVID, but with assholes, because I think (laughs) that assholes also ruin this experience because then everyone's afraid to put themselves out there. And like the people that aren't afraid, spoiler alert, are the loud assholes Mm -hmm. on either side. Yeah. that want to shout down other opinions. But it's what you really need is you need the quiet people to be a little bit more vocal. Yeah. I think there's two sides to that. You know, there are some that they don't want to fight. I um, personally am willing to fight, but I'm also exhausted, right? There's part of me that's just, I've, you know, I've been active before and I just, I don't want to say, it's not, it's not that I'm lazy, but I don't, want to duke it out. I don't want to discuss it on Facebook. I don't necessarily want to engage in the conversations that you just said that you look for because I'm so tired of it for the fighting. And I don't, that's bad. Shame on me. Shame on me for that. Shame her listeners. Shame. Please do. If I could have, truly, if I had these conversations with Jeff, my brother Jeff, your uncle Jeff, 
He's great. He actually disagrees with me politically on uh, many things. He's, an, I think, an independent. He's an aggressive libertarian. Thank you. Yeah. There we go. Aggressive. But I love talking to him. I truly love talking to him. He's intelligent. He's educated on the issues. And it is safe to talk to him because he's truly uh, interested in what I have to say because we both want to learn, actually, truly. Yeah. And, and the, that's the difference. And my family that we don't talk to anymore got too personal. And that's why I don't see myself ever re-engaging with them is they turned those political conversations into personal attacks on my gayness and and whatever else and those are things i can't get past because apparently they were problems all along and i just didn't know it but i do want to be able to get past it with other people and i just need to find the energy for that well and i think like one thing that i would say about you that i personally really really admire and aspire to is that i feel like your position in most arguments, in spite of what you've just said, is change my mind. That's not what you say, but I think that you always approach a conversation willing to have your mind changed, at least with politics. Like, obviously, you're not going to be talked out of being a lesbian. Like, nobody has an argument that persuasive, um, contrary to men of the 90s. <laughs> but I think that, I do think that you approach conversations like, this is what I think, but I could be swayed. <laughs> And I think that that's really, really valuable. Like, that's why I enjoy talking to you so much. Wrapping this up, final question. We recently went to DC together. Oh my God! <laughs> and it was the best trip. It was so fun. What was your favorite part? Well, all of it, but the inspiration of the place. It was everywhere. Our freedom rang everywhere we went. Oh my gosh, here's the actual best incident. It was so cold also, you guys, and that doesn't sound fun to you, but to us in California where it's never cold in the little place that we lived, it was cold there and I loved it. So how many jackets did you bring? Uh, two, three, not sure. All of our jackets. Right. Anyway, so we walked 10 miles the first day. Yep. And we made it over to the Lincoln Memorial via the World War II amazing monument and we get over there to the lincoln memorial and we do our thing and it's as magnificent as it always is and then we went to get our hot chocolate and i hear a ruckus in the trees and what is it hillary i don't know angelie what is it a bald eagle a bald eagle yes it's like right above us like america like america freedom where was ringing freedom was where did we see it at the Lincoln Memorial. Oh my gosh, in Washington, D.C.? Yes, the capital of our country. Oh my God. Yeah, that, yeah. It, it was like that moment the whole time we were there. <laughs> Granted, there was a lot going on. So we, we were standing at Martin Luther King's monument when it was announced that the, black, the first black um, Supreme Court justice was nominated. That was powerful. And then the Ukraine was happening. And we're eating lunch, and several Ukrainians walked by with a flag, and Hillary and I just looked at each other and tried not to weep. Didn't succeed. I did cry in this yes, cafe because yes. everyone started clapping. As you do for these people. Oh, my gosh. Right? <laughs> yeah, so the, the whole place was just, and I've been there several times, and I'm usually in love with the place. It was especially so this time. Partly because of you, Hillary. Oh. Because you're so much fun. We're both full on, full on tourists, right? Bus and also, like, the level of patriotism we're expressing <laughs> right now is a modicum of what we had in D.C. Like, we were like, what's yep. left? America. What's right? America. Up? America. Down? America. 
<laughs> Can we take it all home? <laughs> yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Literally, Hillary was taking things out of her suitcase. She left her pajamas. She left different things just so we could make space for all of our trinkets. For our souvenirs. <laughs> it's true. It's true. America. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I am so thankful that you came on the show. I hope you come back again. Listeners, you'll have to let me know if you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. You can fire those emails off to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Let me know. That's it for this episode, so stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye.